Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Come on, pick and roll! 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Terms apply. It's time for the man who taught Vince Carter how to slam. You can't make this stuff up. <laughs> the man whose three inspired the Curry family. I don't exaggerate, I congratulate. With another masterpiece. It's time for you know who my man Seiku. Go airborne. It's Seiku Smith's Hang Time Podcast. Take it away. Welcome into another edition of the Hang Time Podcast. Your host, Seku Smith, here in Atlanta. Got a fantastic show lined up for you today with some good conversation with some of the best guys in the league who cover the NBA on a daily basis. Jason Quick of The Athletic, you know his work covering the Portland Trailblazers for years. They got a new guy in town and Carmelo Anthony, and Jason has spent some quality time with Melo to get behind the scenes on his reintroduction into the NBA again. We also have Adam Himmelsbach of the Boston Globe talking about the always interesting Boston Celtics now that Kimball Walker is in place of Kyrie Irving as the head of that snake. And those young guys in Boston, how they've come along and what they look like early on at the quarter pole of this NBA season. First up, Jason Quick of The Athletic talking mellow, trailblazers, and everything else with Portland basketball. Carmelo Anthony was named Western Conference Player Mm -hmm. of the Week for the 11th time in his career. It had been a while in the West anyway. Uh, But the first time as a Blazer, he averaged just over 22 a game and three Blazer wins. So the question is, how much does he have to do with this mini win streak for for Portland? Well, I think Portland was dead in the water. I watched them early, and they had nothing going. Their transition defense was bad. They just looked really bad. I just think it's really great for Melo. I really do. And I don't know if he addresses all the problems that Portland has, but he's a guy that can make some shots. He can go in there, and he seems to have, have seems to really be enjoying it. Every every interview I see him do, he's excited to be back in the NBA and playing. Jason Quick, one of my favorite writers, beat writers, NBA pundits. N- nobody knows the Blazers better than you do, my man. Um, what made the Blazers dive in on Carmelo. I mean, any any number of teams could have tested those waters. Why why the Blazers, and why, and why now? Well, they had an, a big injury to the kind of the position that they were most vulnerable in. Uh, power forward, when Zach Collins went down uh, with a separated shoulder, it left them really vulnerable. And the two guys that they had behind him, Anthony Tolliver and Mario Hazonia, just weren't getting it done. Uh, I mean, they were almost literally giving them nothing. And it was after a home game against Toronto where uh, Toronto went on a 14 to nothing run and they were getting a bunch of uh, offensive rebounds and uh, the Blazers really had no one to stop Siakam. And it, it became really apparent to Neil Olshay, the, the team's uh, president of basketball operations, that we can't continue to go on like this. This is a very expensive roster, the second highest paid roster in the NBA. This is a team that had uh, championship aspirations and their season was slipping away. So they 
felt like they needed to take a chance. And so they reached out to Mello and uh, kind of said, hey, we need you. You need us. Let's make this work. And, you know, in talking to Carmelo, the thing that really kind of appealed to him was how transparent the Blazers were. They were like, look, this is what we see as your role. You come in, you start. Uh, we need your offense. Uh, and I, I think he appreciated that, that, okay, look, they're being very forthright from the start that what my role is going to be. And, you know, I don't know how deep that got in to that, you know, once or if Collins comes back, whether he would be open to coming uh, off the bench. But it, it sounds like it, they were very open with each other, and, and that's why Carmelo uh, w- was kind of open to entertaining this idea. And I also think that his prior relationships with C.J. McCollum and Damian Lillard really helped because uh, these two were very active in recruiting him in the summer of 2017 CJ plays with them, uh, has played with him over the summer, the last four years. So he had a comfortability with, with those two stars and knowing that the two stars would welcome him, uh, I think played a part too. I know you haven't necessarily dealt with Camilo on a regular basis before now. How much of Melo, the, the guy you come to know here quickly, compares to the Melo persona that's been out there for years. I mean, it's a, this guy who's been around the league for, for close to two decades. How much of that image and, and personality you thought that he was turns out to be true? <laughs> it's completely different. Uh, you know, this is my 21st year covering the Blazers, and I had never dealt with Carmelo. You know, obviously I'd watched him play. I'd seen interviews, but I had never dealt with him. And, um I think, you know, if I'm going to be honest, I, I was kind of turned off by him. I wasn't intrigued by his game. Uh, you know, my, the biggest kind of character uh, reveal of him for me in my mind was when he uh, punched Jared Jeffries in the Madison Square Garden and, and backtracked. So I didn't really have a positive uh, uh, viewpoint of him. But Man, after meeting him and being around him and watching him and just kind of soaking in his aura, I couldn't be more impressed. I, I am uh, just absolutely floored by him. I, I, I think he's incredibly interesting, uh, thoughtful. And I think, you know, I, I don't know what he was like when he was younger, but it, it's really fascinating for me to see him at age 35 and his 17th season in the NBA and being out for a year, kind of uh, living in real time and and having this perspective uh, and this viewpoint of where he is in his career and him him realizing that it's, it's fascinating to watch. Um, But I got to tell you, I, I, he's been entertaining to, to watch. He's helped this team. Um, you know, he, he's the furthest thing from being selfish on the court. Uh, and, and the biggest thing out of all of this is he can still play. I mean, he has been very, very good for the Blazers. And the fact that he has been out of the NBA for a year is mind-boggling to me because this, this dude can not only still play, he can play at a high level. 
Um, but to get back to, to your original question, I, I couldn't be more impressed with him as an individual and a professional. Uh, and I, I didn't realize just how big a star he is. I mean, every city we went to, you know, fans were cheering him. Some arenas were chanting his name. And just the aura that he brings uh, when he's walking around, walking into the arena, walking out, the amount of media that is interested in him, he is a show and he is a superstar. And, you know, it's been interesting, too, because for the Blazers, for the past eight years, Damian Lillard, this has been his team. This is He's been the biggest star on this team. And now you add in Carmelo, and, and he's this show. And it's been interesting to see that dynamic within the locker room. And I think one of the reasons why this is working so far is Dame is totally cool with watching this and, and having all the media be around Carmelo instead of him and having all the stories and the focus and highlights be around Carmelo. Uh, Dame is relishing in it. And Dame keeps saying, I love it because I want to help his comeback uh, be as great as it can be. And I think that takes something for a, a superstar to do that, to kind of succeed some of his attention and uh, limelight. And, and Dame has, has done that from day one here when, when Carmelo has come in. It's, it's interesting. I've been to Portland enough times over the course of my years covering the league to, to get a grasp on the culture of basketball in that city and kind of what the Blazers mean to Portland. And I, I said it several times in the offseason and, and on NBA TV as we got into the first couple weeks of the season that as weird as it sounds, Portland and Carmelo, I thought, would just be an interesting kind of cosmic match because Melo is a, is a player you have to wrap your head around and understand why people seem to take to him so much. Um, but then Portland is a, a city unique enough to have its guard down to accept a guy like Melo. It would have been tougher for him to go to some other markets and get the kind of love he'll get in Portland. Um, do you think he's as good a match as I thought he might be? Because I, I thought it would be a, a slam dunk even before they reached out to him that, that he would fit. I don't think he was welcomed right away with open arms. But once guys, once fans saw that he could still play, and play at a high level. And then once I think they heard his interviews and heard where he was at mentally and uh, from a personal standpoint, then they, they were all in. I mean, this city is completely all in with him. And uh, after his first home game, you know, they were chanting his name. And it was really, really cool to see. And it wasn't just a little chant. I mean, it was full-throated. And they've, they've done that for a few players here over, over the years. Uh, but th- that was kind of a special moment. So, you know, I, I think it was interesting. I was talking to C.J. McCollum about this and, you know, about why it's working so far in, in these first seven games. And he's like, you know, Melo doesn't really have to change with us because Portland's one of those, I don't want to say old school teams, but, they're, they're not completely relying upon the three-point shot. 
Portland plays a lot of mid-range games. They're slow offense. It's about finding space and, and uh, getting people open uh, wherever it might be, not not necessarily behind the three-point line. And that's mellow, you know. You, you find your little mid-range shot. Uh, you can have some of your isolations. So they're not asking him to be uh, very different from the player he is. So uh, it, it is a good fit from a basketball standpoint. And I think from uh, just an environment standpoint, you're right. Uh, you know, this is a basketball city. And I think once they saw that he can play and, and play at a high level, uh, they were all in on him. And I think the fact that he's such a good dude to uh, people here, that, that matters to them. Uh, if you're a good player and a good person, then the city wraps your, their arms around you. If you're a good player and you're not a good person, then it's kind of an arm's length relationship. But uh, this this town sees the quality of person that, that Carmelo is. And uh, and that's why I think it, it's been such a, a fun thing to see develop the, the relationship between him and the city. So, so I'm going to get off the mellow track for one second, just try and figure out what in the world changed so dramatically from making the Western Conference Finals last year to to this team coming out and struggling with what it did. Was it just injuries? I mean, and that and that's a very valid reason why a team could struggle. But was there something fundamentally different just in, in who they were, the locker room? I know they lost some guys who had been kind of mainstays for them, Al Farouk, Aminu, you know, Harkless. They had been kind of very specific pieces for what Terry Stotts was working with. I know some of the staff changed. Um, you take a guy like, Dave Vanderpool off that staff, it, you 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 know you miss maybe some of the behind the scenes things that he might have been doing that that were beneficial to the entire group. What was the shift from from where they finished last year to the start of this season for the Blazers? Yeah, you've touched on a lot of the major parts. Uh, one, there was six new guys that came in. You know, seven left, six new guys came in. And anytime you have that much turnover, it's going to take a while to kind of understand each other and to uh, get that kind of flow and rhythm going with each other. And, you know, Portland had be, had one of the most, you know, uh, familiar and cohesive units in the NBA. That, that core of Al Farouk and Maurice Hartless, uh, C.J. McCollum and Damian Lillard, and even you throw in Nurkic in there a little bit, uh, they were together for the, the greater part of four seasons, and they knew each other very well. And as you know, when you know each other, the the biggest kind of benefit of that is defensively. You know that a guy's going to be there on help. You know what a guy's weaknesses is. Uh, so that team knew each other very, very well. And also you throw in there, Evan Turner, uh, who was traded for Kent Bazemore, was an incredible locker room presence for this team. Uh, Al Farouk Amino was uh, a glue guy as far as personalities. He was just this low-key, cool, 
never panic type guy. Uh, and Harkless was so versatile. Uh, and then you even throw in guys like Jake Lehman, who filled in for Harkless when he was injured. Myers Leonard, a, a guy that was very well liked in the locker room. So they lost a lot of their defensive identity and they lost a lot of their kind of personality because that locker room had uh, grown together. They were able to uh, call each other out very easily and, and know that it was coming from a good place. Uh, so that's one thing. They, they lost a lot of the familiarity. You touched on David Vanderpool, which really hasn't been a, a subject that has been brought up a lot. Vanderpool left for the Minnesota Timberwolves. He was the the head of the Blazers defense. He, he was the coach in, in charge of the defensive game plans. And early on, the Blazers have not been very good defensively. And I don't put that all on uh, Nate Tibbetts, who has now inherited that role. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with the new personnel and injuries. But certainly there there is an element there of having a new guy calling the, the plays and doing the game planning. And then also David Vanderpool is very, very close with Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum. They were, it was almost like Vanderpool was a player. Uh, these guys would hang out on the road uh, with each other, uh, go over to each other's homes. They were very close. So uh, there's an element there that, that is not present anymore. Uh, you know, how much it's hard to quantify exactly where that plays, but it's probably a factor. But mainly the the thing more than anything is the injuries. I mean, Zach Collins, uh, people out there within around the nation might not think that that is that huge of a loss, but he was enormous for this team. Uh, he was getting his, his kind of the first year he was a starter and he was so versatile, a seven-footer who was playing power forward. But early on in the year, you know, I point to the, the game he got hurt, the third game of the year at Dallas, which still remains the Blazers' best victory of the season. Uh, Porzingis was, was killing Whiteside because uh, Whiteside wouldn't go out and guard him up at the three-point line. So at halftime, Terry Stott said, okay, Zach, you're going to guard Porzingis. Uh, and that ended up being kind of the, the thing that really changed that game and allowed the Blazers to beat Dallas. Uh, so not having that option now moving forward, you know, Collins is going to be out until March at least. Uh, they're not as versatile defensively, and they just don't have two seven-footers uh, to kind of protect the rims. So, that has been big. And then throughout the season, you know, Rodney Hood has missed multiple games in a row. Damian Lillard has missed multiple games in a row. Hassan Whiteside has missed multiple games in a row. So they've never really had their core together for extended periods of time. This right now, uh, they've played four consecutive games with the same starting lineup of Lillard, McCollum, Hood, Carmelo Anthony, and Hassan Whiteside. And they're three and one in that time. And you're starting to see a little bit of uh, the benefit of the continuity and, and having their best players available all at the same time. So it's been a, a bunch of different little things, uh, but it, it feels like they're starting to turn, that they're starting to get it. They're, they're playing more 
the blazer basketball that we've come to see of better spacing, cutting, passing, moving, uh, you know, better rotations on defense. Uh, you know, even last night, they lost by 20 last night to the Clippers, but uh, th- that was a, a competitive game through, you know, two and a half quarters. Then Portland just, they couldn't hit shots. They got open shots. They couldn't hit them. But still, I, I think that was an eye-opener to the <laughs> kind of the gulf between the top of the West and, and where the Blazers are now and how difficult it's going to be for them to get uh, back into this race. But I still think that all that being said, I, I think things are starting to turn for the Blazers where they're trending in the right direction. This this has been a a, a strange existence for – Dame, um, in that he's he's one of these players in the league, and there have been guys in every generation that are like this, who is universally respected amongst his peers as one of the elite players in the league. Um, he's got the, you know, he gets the all-stars now. He's, he's mentioned when you're talking about the best player's position. And yet I still think people aren't aware of just how good he is, mainly because Dame's not a 6'5", or not even a 6'4", physical specimen point guard in an era when point guards have the ball in their hands as much as they ever have and are allowed to dictate tempo and, and, and pace and everything in ways that they never did maybe a, a generation mm-hmm. or two ago. Um, where do you think Dame fits in his era in terms of the great players at that position? Because... For my money, his name doesn't come up often enough. Um, maybe it's a lack of, of you know, seeing him in high-pressure moments in the playoffs. I don't know what it is, but it was almost like some people were just getting introduced to him last year when he's waving bye-bye to Russ, and, you know, they get into the conference finals and playing on that stage. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think just having a front-row seat for his career, I've seen him – kind of go from this uh, unrespected or uh, underrated point guard to where he is now. I, I think mm-hmm. he is getting the, the due, and he should. I, I think mm-hmm. he's one of the best, not just one of the best point guards in the NBA, I think he's one of the best players in the NBA. And I think the people who watch this league on a day-to-day basis understand that. Uh it's not just his scoring or uh, the way he kind of manages the game. This guy's the complete package. Uh, you know, two or three years ago, the big bugaboo on him was defense, and he made a concerted effort uh, two summers ago that I'm going to get better at this. My team uh, relies on me, and I can't be – saying I'm, I'm the leader of the team when I'm not doing a certain aspect uh, of the game, defense. And he has gotten markedly better at defense. And so he is he is the complete package. And beyond all that, and I, I know I talk about it a lot, is, is he's an incredible, incredible leader. And what he stands for, what he gets out of his teammates, he, he brings – the best out of his teammates. And I, I think that's the greatest attribute of a leader is, is you make people around you better. And the reason he does that is because he genuinely cares about 
the people in his locker room. He wants to see them succeed. It, it's not about him. It's not about uh, his resume. His The only thing that matters on his resume to him is winning. And that's the thing he always points to first is how many years he's been to the playoffs. You know, six of his seven years he's been to the playoffs. And, you know, it's interesting. I was doing a, a piece about the decade, the this past decade and the greatest moments in Blazers history. And I've told him I was trying to decide what the best moment in Blazers uh, the, the last decade was. Was it his uh, game-winning shot against Houston in the 2014 playoffs <laughs> where he caught the inbounds and, and made a three-pointer with 0.9 seconds left? Or was it the three to beat OKC in the wave after uh, in last year's playoffs? And he just immediately said, our best moment was winning game seven in Denver to get to the Western Conference Finals. You know, it, it wasn't an individual thing. He was like, no, it was our team winning game seven. And I thought that was so indicative and, and so representative of how uh, he views what he's doing. It, it's not about him. It's about the team. And so, but to get your thing, I, I think he is an elite, elite player in this league. Uh, I don't think it's out of the question for him to win the MVP one of these years. Uh, you know, he's been all, MB, all NBA for, I don't know, what is it, three, four straight years in a row now, first team one year. So uh, I, I think people know. I think the people who really pay attention know just how good he is. So, Jason, in closing, um, you know, it's hard for me now to take long-term looks at this league with the way players move around now, the way things change in an instant, the way injuries can impact a situation. Um, but it's interesting. I was I was in the Warriors locker room the other night, and, there, you know, there's Draymond sitting in the corner, but basically everybody else in the locker room was a was a new face. You know, Steph wasn't there, Clay wasn't there. Um, do you think that the Blazers have gotten the mileage out of the consistency they've shown in in their roster, in in their core stars, and in kind of their their attitude and approach to how they want to build that team? It paid off last year in a trip to the conference finals. Um, to me, that's. That's the kind of success that any franchise has to look at and understand. It doesn't happen for everybody. Like it, it, there are plenty of teams that would kill to make a conference final. Like, do you think the Blazers, are, and, and satisfied is not the word, but do you think they're content with moving forward in the fashion they have been to to continue to maybe reap some of those benefits like we saw last year? Yeah. See, the, the thing about the Blazers is, the thing that they really hang their hat on is player development. They, they are not a big uh, player in the free agent market. The way this franchise is successful usually is by drafting guys and then developing them. And so they feel like this team is really set up for a nice run in these coming years. They got Zach Collins, uh, and then they got Anthony Simons, who is really going to be a great player. He's 20 years old right now. Uh, he's going through a little bit of a slump right now. But when you combine – and then also Nasir Little, a first-round pick this year. 
uh, who's been kind of thrown into the fire, but he has responded very well. So they feel like that they are really set up for a run in these next couple of years once uh, Colin, Simons, and Little kind of develop. And then this summer, they'll have 20, about $20 million in, in free agency uh, to kind of throw around and, and kind of plug holes here and there. And then also, I think, look, people are forgetting about Yusuf Nurkic. I mean, he's 24 years old. Yeah. He's supposed to be coming back in uh, February. We'll see what level he is uh, coming off that broken leg. But they have a lot of young pieces. This is not an aging team. Uh, or a bunch of guys who are a bunch of stars who are coming uh, to the end of their contracts. They've got Lillard and McCollum long-term. They've got two young studs in Simons and Collins. They got uh, their franchise center and Nurkic coming back. So I think the moving ahead, this team is is set up pretty well. And then, uh, you know, you throw in that player development that they're so proud of uh, and they think that, uh, you know, there's bright days ahead. No doubt. No doubt. Listen, thanks, Quick. I appreciate you taking the time out, man. Um, hug my, my favorite playoff city for me. Um, <laughs> tell Portland I'll be back, hopefully, at some I point. I love soon. it because they always sit up <laughs> together, and I, I love watching a game with you, man. It's, it's, uh, it's a blast. No doubt, man. Appreciate you, Quick. All right. We'll see you, man. As always, Jason Quick with – insights and information into the Portland Trailblazers. We go coast to coast now from Portland to Boston and spend a little time with Adam Himmelsbach of the Boston Globe talking Celtics. Boston loses Kyrie Irving and Al Horford to free agency. Obviously, they bring in Kemba Walker, uh, but the parts seem to fit better even without Gordon Hayward in the lineup right now. Yeah, without Gordon Hayward, and, ho- and hopefully, uh, you know, Marcus Smart won't be out for very long. But, you know, this team, they've been together. Now, they're young uh, for the most part, but they've been together for a few years now. And these young guys have some experience. They have tasted some some success. Um, and, they, you know, they're starting to take that next step with, with Jason Tatum, with Jalen Brown. Uh, you know, and so, uh, want, you know, they can keep the, stip, the ship steadied until Gordon Hayward gets back, which I think they can because of Kimball Walker's ability on the offensive end. You know, this team has a chance. I'd like to see them get another big guy, just a high IQ big guy that can just facilitate a little bit DHO, make, make some passes, but that can block some shots and do some, do some things in the paint for them. I, um, I'm a little bit concerned about them. They're bigs, but I mean, they're playing great, and Jalen Brown has just been getting better and better. I just like his activity on the defensive end. Uh, Tatum, again, you know, making threes. And so you put Hayward in that mix. They're another team that's be able to play big or play small and have some versatility. Would like to have, would like to see a little, a, a, a tweak in their big man rotation. You always want to see a tweak in the big man rotation. I do. <laughs> I, like, I like big guys, all right? I like big guys that can play. Adam Himmelsbach joining us here on the Hangtime Podcast. Um, you got one of those those strange scenarios this season, Adam, in trying to cover this Celtics team and then also trying to not ask Marcus Smart questions about former members of the Celtics team. How's, how, how is the delicate balance of focusing on these guys now and what they're going to be compared to what they were or what they should have been in the past, just in terms of the daily dealings with this team? Yeah, there's no doubt that based on how bad last year went uh, and everything that went on with it, 
from the season itself to the departures that followed it. That became a pretty big storyline that yeah. lingered well into this season, much longer. Like, you always talk about when a new season starts, you always talk about last year a little bit, right? This year, it, it's, like, still going on. Um, part of it is because last year was so bad, and part of it now is because this year has started pretty well, so it's, like, a logical kind of question, okay, what's the difference? What's what's changed so much? So for sure that last year remains very much in the backdrop. Every day that goes by it gets a little further and further away. Even though Kyrie didn't come here and didn't play, like it felt like that Nets game or those two Nets games even kind of pushed it a, a little further and got them through like another mile post. All right, we've we've played the Nets. Of course now eventually he's probably gonna play against them at some point and it'll all resurface again. Um, but for sure you're right, the Celtics are ready to just focus on this year and how different are they i mean you know they feel different watching them uh they they look different with kimba in that position as opposed to Kyrie. um tatum and brown seem to be back in the kind of groove they were a couple years ago marcus smart is doing his thing i know hayward's out but i mean they look different to you know with the eyeball test but are they at their core, are they different to you in terms of what you think they are as a group? Yeah, I mean, they definitely have a different identity. You know, everyone talks about Kyrie's departure, which is significant, but really Al Horford's departure probably changed them more. Uh, it's not very common that you can just fill in one all-star point guard with another, which is what they did by bringing Kemba in. Of course, Kemba and Kyrie are a little bit different players, but still. Um, but Al's departure, Aaron Baines' departure, the Celtics have gotten kind of back to this kind of wing-heavy, uh, they go smaller a lot more often uh, lineup. And the thing is, obviously Hayward's out now, but he was playing almost all-star level while he was in. Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum have both taken that next step that you would hope they would as such young players. Um, and part of that, I think, is them just getting better as they get older and part of that is feeling more confident like looking around and being like all right like looking around at this team this is this is kind of our team now they, they need us to do these big things they need me jason tatum to take whatever 20 21 shots a game and i'm ready for that do you do you think that brad has changed i mean after last season i know he you know came out and said that he thought he didn't do as good a job of managing that team as he could have um what about his approach do you approach do you think has changed this season yeah brad's really pretty steady uh even when he first got here and the team wasn't very good yet to when they've had their their success um i think last year was hard on him um and it was the most challenging year of his career really at, at any level i think for the first time you know he's been a coach who pretty much everywhere or every 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 you know from taking Butler to two championship games to bring the Celtics from a struggling team to a conference finalist several times. Uh, he's gotten unanimous praise. And last year was the first time people kind of stepped back and, and criticized him. Uh, I think that kind of got to him a little bit. But I don't think he's necessarily changed his approach. I think he's really enjoying coaching this team. I think he likes having guys that he knows are going to play hard every single night. And it feels a little bit like those Isaiah Thomas teams that even if this team's down 15, 16, 17 points in the second half, they're going to give it one last run and they're going to claw and fight. And those are the teams Brad really likes coaching. Yeah. Um, 
as far as Kimba's concerned, um, is he is he better or, or what you thought he was in terms of what kind of fit he would be with this Celtics team? Yeah, Kemba's so solid. Like, you you know, when they played the Hornets, I was down in Charlotte just talking to people about him. I, I can't remember the last guy who you can you cannot find a single person to say a bad word about the guy. And not only do they not say a bad word, like, everyone who's ever interacted with him just, like, glows uh, at just what kind of person he is, what kind of worker he is, what kind of player he is. And the Celtics needed that um, on both levels. They needed, obviously, a skill in there to make up for Kyrie. But they also needed someone who's going to, like, come in and, and kind of be that kind of human being off of the court as well uh, and be that guy around teammates who's just kind of like his, like Kemba's mom made Thanksgiving dinner for some of the, most of the team uh, in New York the other day. Like little things like that when that's your star player doing that and you hate to always juxtapose everything against Kyrie, but right now I think the players do that a little bit, especially the returning players and they're like, man, this, this dude's just fun to be out there with. He's not criticizing us you've seen times when he's had a bad game and the Celtics win anyway and he's like thrilled he's like man during my eight years in Charlotte if I had a bad game we were probably gonna lose he's like this is pretty great to, but I can go whatever five for 16 and we can still win because we have Jason Tatum we have Jalen Brown I mean there was a game against the Knicks when Tatum hit the game-winning shot of the buzzer and some people were wondering like oh how's Kemba gonna feel about not getting that last shot this early in his tenure you know this is supposed to be his team and he was like man I don't that shot went in even if it didn't that was a great shot like I don't want to have to carry this team on my back all the time I want to kind of do this together with these other guys and that's what they've done so far what are the you know and and we all know that Boston's fans are um, as passionate and as informed about the game as anybody that's a very nice way of I noticed the venom they had for Kyrie in that Nets game, even though Kyrie didn't even play. Um, but what what has been their initial feelings about Kimba? I'm sure they're glad to have him. You know, obviously he's playing well, so that makes them feel good. But I mean, what are they fully invested in the Kimba Walker experience and what that's going to be for the foreseeable future? I mean, have they taken to him the way you thought? Yeah, it's an interesting because. He's had some really, really good games. Uh, he had a, a little bit of a slow start. It's actually a, funny, a little funny story. I was talking to his mom, uh, and she was telling me about how his first game in Boston, he was struggling, and she was there. She was at TD Garden, and she heard some fans mm-hmm. either kind of yelling to him or even just talking about, like, man, this guy isn't so good. And she literally had to turn around and be like, hey, give him some time. You know, he literally just got here. He's going to be all right. And then like right after that, he hit a jumper or whatever. And they were like, okay, okay. But Boston fans are tend to not always be super patient. Um, but I think right now fans are just enjoying having a team that they like cheering for uh, and like watching play every night. There isn't like a great focus on Kemba. And, and again, there's not a sense that he's clearly above others on this team. You know, you can make an argument when Hayward was playing, that Hayward was having the best season of anyone on the team. There's moments where Jason Tatum has been the best player on this team. So there isn't, like, the star pressure of, okay, Kemba, we need you to carry us. Now, it's, it's funny you talked about his mom and, and what kind of support system a guy would have going into the situation he's in. I've, I've been curious about the Celtics team in general. Just they have these young 
wings in, in Tatum and Brown, who I think we all feel are, are going to be all-star level players um, at some point in the near future. What What's the dynamic now that they don't have veterans like Kyrie and, and also Al Horford around? Like, Have they taken full ownership of their roles on this team? Have, have they kind of stepped into that next phase of the process, so to speak, um, in terms of how they'll function going forward as a pair? Yeah, I think that's safe to say. I think particularly with Jalen Brown, and you remember him last year, he was a guy that really got irked by some of Kyrie's statements about criticizing the young guys over and over again and, and just kind of the two. They, they could butt heads a little bit here and there. Tatum and Kyrie had a, a much better relationship, it seemed like. But I, I think that they're embracing, kind of like I was saying earlier, like they're embracing the fact that there's nights where they both need to be the guys, and that's what they want. Um, do they still have steps they need to take and growth they need to make? Of course, and and they both will acknowledge that. Like Tatum's scoring and rebounding and everything is up, but his shooting's a little bit down, and you know he'd like to become a little more efficient than he's been. Um, Jalen Brown's had some really good games, then he's had some quiet ones. I think he'd like to be a little more consistent. But again, Jalen Brown just turned 23. Jason Tatum is still 21. Those are two guys that are starting to be building blocks on a team that looks like it should still be in the top four in the East, um, if not even a little higher in the East. Uh, like You're going to feel pretty good about that. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, this, this season um, is clearly a competitive, as you mentioned, potential top four team in the East. But what, what's the ceiling for this particular group in your mind, this for this season? Yeah, it's hard to say because there's no doubt they're better than people thought. And I think that's safe to say, like, are they going to win 60 games or whatever, like they're on pace? Probably not. Um, but I think there's no question in what's given Brad Stevens some peace of mind is he can look and be like, all right, we're definitely going to be really good this year. Uh, and I think anybody watching them has seen that. As far as where that leaves them in the East, it's hard to say. Because, look, like, the Heat are way better than anyone's expected. You saw their big win in Toronto last night. They're obviously coming to Boston tonight. The Pacers are playing really well, and Victor Oladipo's not even back yet. You look at that team, like, if he can come back and be all-star lever Oladipo, like, there's a lot of teams in the East that are all in that mix. And, of course, we haven't even mentioned the Bucks, who just are destroying everyone right now. So I think... If you're the Celtics, you feel good about how you're playing and you feel good about, all right, we're going to have a strong season. Where that leaves you, it's hard to say because there's a lot a lot of teams in that top five and six that look really strong. What do you, what do you think is Danny's Danny Ainge's view of this group? And, you know, there was a lot made about whether or not the Celtics would part with some of their young assets, you know, last year um, in order to to make a splash, to make a big deal, to grab a free agent, to make a, a, a blockbuster trade. Has Danny, you think, changed his attitude or mind about what works for the Celtics going forward, maybe building around these younger guys as opposed to hoping that you can a- attract an Anthony Davis-type free agent or make a trade for a Paul George-caliber player to complete what you're trying to do? I mean, I, I don't know. You know, Danny gets talked about a lot, you know, by media guys, but I, he rarely comes out and, 
divulges any secrets. You know, it's not like he's telling people what choreographing what his plans are. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, like you mentioned Anthony Davis, it's really crazy if you think about it that like a year ago now, the Celtics dream for this season was to have Anthony Davis, Al Horford, and Kyrie Irving all on this court, like sitting up against the Heat tonight. <laughs> and not only did that not happen, none of those three players are here. And then you would have assumed, all right, they don't have any of those three players looking really bad, and they're really like a pretty good team again. So it's been pretty fascinating to see. With Danny and just the entire front office, there's no question that based on how last year went, um, from the ending against the Bucks to the frustrations during the regular season, that there was like a premium put on like, all right, we need to kind of rebuild around good character guys who are going to play hard every night, like we like we had been doing previously, uh, and they they kind of focused that even even in the draft. They really focused in on guys like Grant Williams, Carson Edwards, Tremont Waters. Like they, they obviously liked them as players, but they wanted that other aspect as well, where they felt like they would be important to the cohesion of the team. Um, if a superstar becomes available, will that like make them not go for them? Probably not. Um, but I think they like they feel a lot better about the makeup of this team right now um, than they did, I guess, a few months ago. If there's a player on the roster that you think is kind of that X factor guy, um, you know, we always talk about when a team gets to the playoffs, they got to have one guy who can kind of put him on his back and to, you know, and, and serve as that number one option catalyst, whatever you want to call it. If they're good, if they're going to be uh, more of a democracy, you know, going through the course of the regular season, how do they vet which guy ends up being that guy in the postseason? Um, or, or do you think they, they're they going to approach it that way? I mean, how how do you imagine this team transforms itself from whatever they do during this regular season into a playoff team where you're going to need uh, an alpha dog or a, a number one option to help you get through a series at some point? Yeah, it's hard to say, but – if I had to guess now, I think it's just going to be a little more of what you're seeing. A lot of it will be matchup dependent. You know, you're going to play some teams where it's like, all right, this is a great matchup for Kemba. Some teams, all right, this is a great matchup for Jason Tatum. Um, I think if you're, every, if everything else is equal, I still think Kemba's that guy. You know, I think he has that killer instinct. He's um, whatever. I mean, it's been a while, but he had, he had that run at UConn where he just kind of led that team on his back, like he's the by far the oldest of these guys you will count on um, for these moments, even though actually Jason Tatum has more big game playoff experience than he does. But I think Kemba's that guy. When you talk about just actual X factor, I th- I still think for this team, the X factor is Marcus Smart. Um, like, you know, Tatum can score, you know, Kemba can score. Um, Hayward does a little bit of everything as well, but Marcus Smart remains and he has been pretty much since he's been here, like the heartbeat of this team, uh, he sets the tone with his defense, with his aggression and tenacity. And, and I think he is a guy that basically they need out there for, for critical moments, almost more than anyone. Like he's not going to get you 20 points a game, but he just does so many other things that not only like help the team, but just kind of get other guys going as well. I think. Yeah. I, I know that, you know, we're still early. We're a quarter of the way through the season. Um, so we don't know if Toronto and Miami continue to play at this level. We don't know 
if Philly cranks it up at some point and plays a lot better or if they stay in that range. We don't know what Oladipo coming back in Indiana does. Um, I'm curious to, to take another look at where all these teams fit, maybe another 20 20 to 25 games into the season because for Boston to, to weather losing Hayward the way they have, I would imagine they're, they may be ahead developmentally, just this team in particular of maybe where anybody thought they'd be. Um, and I'm curious if you think that they're maybe ahead of the curve, not, not so much the record, but just what they look like and, and what their, their potential looks like. 19, 20 games into the season. Yeah, I think there's no question about that. And they, there is some concern that obviously Hayward's injury isn't nearly as worrisome as his last one, not even close. He's pretty much back practicing again. I think he should be back relatively soon. He said yesterday, actually, the one thing that surprised me a little bit was that he's like, look, I'm probably going to be dealing with some pain in this left hand for pretty much the rest of the year, and they're going to have to manage that. So you never want to hear that but he still feels good um about his recovery and kind of where that stands it's hard to say like even with the celtics they've had a couple of good wins for sure like being the bucks and raptors at home early on um but they've also kind of piled up some like they played then they have three wins against the knicks already right they beat the Cavs. like that some of their tougher tests granted most of them have come recently without hayward but they've you know, lost to the Clippers, lost to Nuggets. They have some good opportunities coming up, though, this month. Obviously, the Heat game, they got a rematch against the Nuggets, some tough road games against the Pacers, and then the Christmas game against the Raptors. Like, I think, kind of like you said, by the end of this month will be a, a, a better gauge of what this team's going to be. Because it's always, you know, you saw when the Suns started, whatever it was, like 8-4, and four, everyone was talking about them as like a top-four seed, and now they've kind of come back to earth a little bit. Still, it's going to be a good team, but those those early season impressions very often, I, mean, I remember a couple of years ago, the Magic started like 7-2 and two and everyone talked about them being great and they ended up really bad. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I think I think by the end of this month, though, you, there should be, based on, especially with some of these tests they have coming up, you should have a better idea of where Boston should stand in the larger scheme of things. And when Hayward comes back and kind of gets in that rhythm, Danny Ainge has said he He's just, while Hayward's going to be fine physically, it's frustrating that they're going to have to kind of once again reshuffle things. Like right now, Tatum, Jalen, like they've gotten comfortable in a new role, and then you're going to have to once again rework a new real, real key piece into things, and that sometimes can be a little challenging. Adam Himmelsbach from the Boston Globe, man. Appreciate you taking the time, as always. Interesting stuff. Um you, your beat never ceases to entertain, man. That that Celtics beat <laughs> has been one of the be- one, just one of the more intriguing teams to watch over the course of you know the past however many years. It's always something, always something in Boston. That's what we say. So I go back and forth. Sometimes I'm like, can I just get a peaceful team where just like not much happens, <laughs> and I can just like go about and just cover them like a normal team? And then sometimes I think that might get boring. So it's more fun to have just kind of madness every few weeks about some crazy thing happening. <laughs> no doubt, man. Thanks, Adam. Appreciate you. All right, man. Have a good one. Got to make sure to take a moment to thank our guest, Jason Quick of The Athletic, talking Portland Trailblazers, Adam Himmelsbach of the Boston Globe, talking Celtics and all things Boston. Appreciate those guys, as always, taking the time out. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. And we will see you right here next time on the Hang Time Podcast. 
for listening to Seku Smith's Hang Time Podcast. Be sure to check out previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NBA.com backslash hangtime, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, Hoops fans. <laughs> <laughs>